Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. dive right into a reading uh, from Scripture, from God's Word uh, to the Romans, the church in Rome, but also to us. Um, and it's Romans chapter 12, all of chapter 12, so it will be a little longer than you might be accustomed to, but uh, I'm going to go through word by word for the next four hours, and it will be very profitable. <laughs> but let's hear just this kind of fullness of what Paul writes to his friends in Rome. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, So we who are many are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith. Ministry in ministering. The teacher in teaching. The exhorter in exhortation. The giver in generosity. The leader in diligence. The compassionate in cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. And that'll show them. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Back in my church, we say, the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. When we talk about cultural renewal, to what might we refer? <laughs> what might we be talking about when we talk about cultural renewal and the mission of this church, spiritual, social, and cultural renewal? Well, it depends on what you think culture is really about. If you observe that culture is made up of artifacts, of human acts of making that bring new created things into the world, you would ask, well, what artifacts ought to be made to renew culture? And then you'd start to ask, how might the people of God be part of making new artifacts, new businesses, new songs, new novels, new films, new uh, laws, perhaps? And that would not be a bad road to go down. I went down it in the book that got David's attention and got me in touch with you all. You might think of culture, though, not just as artifacts, but as institutions. Patterns of human behavior extended over time. And then you would ask, what kind of institutions should the church be building? What kind of institutions need renewing? And there are good books on that, too. And I tried to write about that in another book. <laughs> but I think the most profound way to think about culture that I want to talk about this afternoon is as imagination, patterns of imagination that shape behavior, the way we act. Imagination that shapes behavior. And, and really, then you have to realize it's imagination that shapes behavior, that shapes imagination, that shapes behavior in this kind of cycle of envisioning, imagining, and then acting but all almost entirely at the subconscious or unconscious level, the deepest layers of our imagination, the most unreflected aspects of our behavior, the things we learned to do before we knew we were learning them, the things we learned to believe were true before we knew we were learning them. And this imagination and the behavior that it shapes ultimately is what flows into the institutions we build and sustain and animates the artifacts that we create. And so if we thought of culture this way, we'd ask, what would it look like to renew our imaginations? Paul is writing to the Romans, the, the citizens or at least residents of the self-conscious capital of the world system as it was known. He's written them for 11 chapters about this kind of unbelievable grand story of God's purposes in history, his justification, his rescue of the world, and his including of the Gentiles in a story that began with Israel. But now in Romans 12, this story has to hit home in a place like Rome. And Paul, as he writes this section of his letter, which goes on from uh, chapter 12 to uh, chapter 16, five chapters worth, um, he's not writing to a church in a rural community where the church might actually be kind of a big game in town. Like, you know, some towns you could go into and, and see that kind of the most impressive building there might be a church building, right? He's not writing to that kind of church community. He's writing to a church community that, as far as anyone around them is concerned, is of absolutely no importance in, an, in a city that thinks of itself as very important. This has no relevance to us uh, this afternoon, but just try to imagine so much is going on in Rome. Yeah, I, honestly, I told my coworkers last week I was going to London. And they were like, oh, you're going to London? 
wow, London. I mean, and all these things they imagine, you know, are you going to see, you know, I don't know, the, the Museum of Natural History or the National Gallery? Or, you know, they had all, all this list of things I could be doing. It's like, no, I'm going to be with the church. <laughs> so much was going on. Commerce, philosophy, engineering, government, endless political intrigue. My gosh, can you imagine the Roman newspapers at this time? And Paul writes this community in the heart of the city, and he seems if anything, distantly concerned with it. Because he seems convinced that the most important thing happening in Rome is this little community of Jews and Gentiles gathered around the news of a crucified and risen Messiah. And in Romans 12, which I just read, he paints this kind of kaleidoscopic picture of a renewed imagination and the behavior that would flow from from it. He says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, well, it says minds. It's probably the best translation, but I think we need to think of mind not just as your thinking part, but your imagination, your conception of the world. Have this renewed, that you may discern what is the will of God, good and pleasing and perfect. What is in your imagination? What are those kind of barely conscious feelings, visions, senses of possibility that accompany you through your life? When I was 24, I became acutely conscious of something that actually had been chronic in my imagination for a long time. It was a pattern that around age 24 was becoming more and more compulsive, more and more out of my control in an uncomfortable way. But it had been going on for a long time. I honestly don't know when it started, probably sometime in my teenage years. And it was a pattern of rehearsing in my mind conversations that I wanted to have with people, some of them female, not all though. All kinds of conversations. Things, conversations that had perhaps actually happened but had gone the wrong way. And I would like start replaying in my mind in this kind of almost audible audio tape what I could have said and then what they would have said and what I could have said. Except it never quite seemed to get to a satisfying resolution. I'd kind of get halfway into this imagination and then just get stuck. Then I'd rewind and start playing it back over again. Or I would imagine someone I'd never talked to but really wanted to talk to and what, what I would say to them and what they would say back. And I found this more and more occupying. I'd be lying awake at night, unable to stop, just sort of imagining an improved life <laughs> and improved conversations over the ones I was actually having and not having. And I think it was becoming compulsive because I was at a a watershed moment in my life. I had met this uh, young woman named Catherine Hirschfeld. I could imagine that possibly she was the one. But I found myself just kind of bound up in these anxious conversations with imaginary Catherine, who actually was willing to talk to me. I had had actual conversations with her. She wasn't totally just unattainable, unobtainium, right? but, but I found myself just torn between trying to have a real relationship with the real person and the sense that I was really caught up in, well, what, would I, what was I caught up in? I would now say a moderate but definitely debilitating case of anxiety. And it was resident in my imagination in this kind of projecting out into some kind of future what it would be like to be me in either a very 
challenging, dangerous, and difficult situation or a kind of wonderful situation. So I think of the basic components of imagination, <laughs> unrenewed imagination, as anxiety and fantasy. Anxiety, imagining the worst. What would happen if it was the worst? And fantasy, imagining kind of the most blissful possible best. But missing something, well, missing probably two key things, but I'm not sure it's actually two. Missing reality, <laughs> missing a sense of anchor in reality, and also missing God. Because I never imagined God with me in those conversations. It was entirely self-contained. And years later, I heard someone define anxiety in my presence as imagining the future without Christ present in it. And isn't this what our anxieties are? We play out the worst-case scenario, but in that scenario, we never conceive or we're never able to internalize that at that moment, perhaps actually, in fact, even if that worst-case scenario came true, there, God would be present. Christ would be present. His spirit would be acting. But that's not how anxiety works. It, it discards that reality and is this self-contained picture of the future, either the best case or the worst case. And my fantasies, <laughs> so my anxieties were about the worst that could go wrong and how I could try to get myself out but never felt like I could, even in my, just the tape in my head. And my fantasies were uh, not about the best possible future. The best possible future is one in which the God who made the world restores the world and is known and praised by the whole world and his glory is spread over the whole world so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fills the world like the waters cover the sea. That wasn't what I was fantasizing about. <laughs> My fantasy was the uncomplicated, unimpeded glory of me. And of course, those two were linked. My anxiety was the mirror image of my fantasy. Without God's presence, without grace, without gift. And it was becoming quite debilitating. And in the context of our anxieties and fantasies, our minds are constantly then engaged when we're with other people in the, exactly the thing that Paul talks about in the second uh, verse of Romans. When he says, let your mind be renewed, be renewed, so you can, and he uses this Greek verb, verb dokimadzein, which we translate as discern. Um, but I, I think of it also as kind of sort out or figure out. It's, it's to work your way through and figure out a situation. And when your mind is occupied, occupied by anxiety and fantasy, you go into every situation and you start doing this dokimadzein thing. You start sorting out, figuring out. So if your fantasy is of status, let's say, of being noticed by other people, of being honored by other people, you walk into a room, a party, and you start scanning the room and sorting out, who, if I talk to them, will my sort of status in the room increase, and whom should I stay away from, because that would sort of be a distraction from my real goal at this party. And then you'll be talking to one person, but then kind of look, oh, there's someone over there, right? If you're driven by anxiety, you'll walk in and you'll start sorting out how are people evaluating me? Do people approve of me? Did someone just look, laugh at me? <laughs> Did someone just frown at me? Did that person like what I just said? And you're, you're sorting that out. You're, you're quite occupied with this discernment process. <laughs> but it's trying to figure out 
what's happening in relation to your anxieties and your fantasies. Some cultures are, I think, anxiety cultures, cultures that live in fear of the spiritual world, of the natural world, of the dark powers that every human being realizes are there in the world. But some are fantasy cultures. They're cultures whose imagination is activated by a kind of picture of a future. And I think that the West has been a fantasy culture. Since, at least since the Enlightenment, that was a fantasy word, by the way, the Enlightenment, after which we had this fantasy that we would progress more and more through the exercise of human knowledge, reason, and capacity, and will, taking advantage of the resources of the world to produce a much better life. At its dawn, it was associated with utopias, these imaginations of how human uh, existence would progress into the future with incredibly wonderful results, (laughs) but without the presence of God. The fantasy has been prosperity without God. And this, I think, actually, is the fantasy overseen by the demonic force called mammon. I get this from our mutual friend John Tyson, a pastor in New York, that really what mammon offers us is the fantasy of prosperity without dependence on God. That is the core, imaginative engine of the world of which this city is very close to the center. But this fantasy actually generates incredible amounts of anxiety as the story has played out. We no longer have utopias. I don't know the last time I walked into a bookshop or looked at the the films playing and saw a utopia. It's all dystopias now. I don't know what they're assigning to read here in like grade seven and eight-ish, but over in the U.S., they read all these awful young adult novels in school. They're all dystopias. I'm like, this is the most, I mean, middle schoolers are already so anxious and depressed. Like to have them read anxious, depressing literature just doesn't seem right. (laughs) Because now what we're finding as this fantasy keeps kind of playing itself out, and in certain ways, the world seems to get in some, by some measures, more and more prosperous, more and more successful, and more and more without God, is that the resonance of that world, in fact, strikingly and strangely, the most privileged, prosperous resonance, the one who would seem to benefit the most from it, are becoming more and more overcome by anxiety. And our minds are filled to the point of debilitation with all the things that could be going wrong, that are going wrong, that will go wrong in our own personal lives, but to some extent, even at a cultural level, we are beginning to imagine profoundly dystopic futures. And they're occupying more and more of our imagination. And so if you have experienced anxiety, and this is a slight aside, but I just want to name it. Uh, Anxiety besides which the anxiety I described that I had might seem very minor. I I want to say... Uh, first of all, you are not alone. You're not alone in this room. You're sure not alone in this city. And it is absolutely right to seek help in dealing with that. There is nothing to be ashamed of. And, And maybe the most important thing I want to say is it's not just you. 
It's not just individual you. It's not some problem inside you. You are in a, an environment that is designed to produce anxiety. I hope that doesn't make you more anxious. Uh, that, I'm realizing this could backfire. Um, you, <laughs> I'm getting to the good news in just a second. Um, you are in the midst of a culture that's been shaping your mind into a pattern. All of our minds. You've been, all of us, have been conformed to the pattern of this world. But what Paul wants for the Romans is for them to be renewed in their imaginations so they are no longer captive to that pattern. That they will be free of both anxiety and fantasy and live in a very different way. So how is this going to happen? And happily, Paul explains how it's going to happen, and I will explain what he says after I take you a drink of water. So what is the cure for this? Well, Paul, in the very first verse I read, sets it up. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So I want to suggest to you that the way you get free of anxiety and fantasy and the way your imagination becomes renewed such that you're then able to start sorting out not who likes me, who doesn't, where am I in this status order or whatever, but the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. The way to do this is actually to become a living sacrifice. What would that mean? Of course, we know what sacrifice was in the ancient world. A family would take a treasured animal, one of their prized possession, not the worst, but the best, take it to some sacrificial place, whether it was a pagan altar or in the Jewish system, the temple, and there that creature would be slaughtered. Not very vegan, actually. And Paul says, what I am asking you to do based on Romans 1 through 11 is to present yourselves as a sacrifice. To, I guess, climb up on the altar yourself and expose your neck and offer yourself to death now, this may not seem like I'm going in the right direction. <laughs> but let me say, if you did that, like if you, on a daily basis, like if you started the morning exposing your neck and saying, okay, slaughter me today, I can tell you two things that would go away. Your fantasies would go away. Because, like, you're about to be slaughtered, so... No need to fantasize, right? The best case scenario is not coming true. <laughs> and your anxieties would go away. Like, this is the worst case scenario. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> it's nothing worse, right? And it's going to happen now. It's not going to happen like, oh, I wonder if it will happen in 10 days. No, today. You would actually be free of anxiety and fantasy. If you started every day saying, today's the day I die. 
could it be that this was the secret of the freedom of Jesus Christ? He had already seen, at least by the time he was an adult and began his ministry, he already knew where he was going. And this is why Jesus never seems tempted by either anxiety or fantasy. The Pharisees come to him. When you're in an anxious culture, there's all these forces that kind of stir up and foment anxiety. The Pharisees come and they say, hey, watch out, Herod is trying to kill you. <laughs> trying to stir up anxiety. Worst case scenario, Herod is going to come kill you. <laughs> he says, go tell that fox, today I'm going to preach and heal and cast out demons and I'm going to do that the next day and the third day I'm going to finish and achieve my goal. He doesn't, he just, they, their attempt to provoke anxiety completely falls flat because Jesus has already decided where he's going. And it's not going to be Herod who puts him on that altar of sacrifice. James and John come to him with a fantasy. <laughs> or in some versions, their mother comes. Um, not the last time a Jewish mother would intercede on behalf of her son. Uh, grant, Lord, that when you come into your glory at your messianic banquet, that we may sit, one of us on your right and one of us on your left. <sighs> Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm going to drink and be baptized by the baptism with which I am baptized? And they say, oh, we're able. <laughs> Jesus says, well, sorry. Uh, the left and the right isn't for mine. It isn't even for me to grant. I don't even know who's going to be there. It's for whoever it has been prepared. And he just dispels their fantasy, even as he knows that he is going to come into his kingdom. And there will be someone on his right. And there will be someone on his left. One of whom he will say to them, today you will be with me in paradise. If we were to live as living sacrifices, we would be free of anxiety and fantasy. And the beautiful thing <laughs> is that Paul does not say, present yourselves as living sacrifices to the goddess of the grove or to the sky god who demands propitiation. But he says, I beseech you by the mercies of God. And I beseech you, having told you the story of God who gave his own son who is now risen from the dead. It's this God that you are going to expose yourself to and offer your life to. And, and in a way say, do your worst, God, because the worst was done to you, and out of that came the best. There's nothing I could offer myself to you, God, for that you could not turn into glory and rescue. And if we were to do this, we would be able to go into every part of our anxious, fantasizing culture and discern the will of God in those places. What's really good, what's acceptable, what's perfect in those places. Can you imagine being able to walk into any room, the classroom that you'll be in later this week, the, the meeting room you'll be in, the examining room you'll be in, uh, the street on which you work, uh, the neighborhood in which you live, and just being able to sense and discern with incredible insight what's actually healthy there 
and what's acceptable there, what's actually uh, good for people there. You know, it's very easy to walk into a room and discern what's wrong. People do that all the time. But what if you could walk in and actually see what's good? And what if you could actually change the tone in the room just by being there? And because you were free of anxiety and fantasy, and because your starting out was not, where do I fit in? How do I succeed? Uh, how do I prevent failure? But you're sorting out, where is God in this place? How can I assist in that? How can I recognize the image of God in other people? How can I restore the image of God where it's been lost? You would be a transforming presence in those places. And what if a whole community could do this? What if there were a whole community of people who gathered together, had their imaginations renewed, then spread out into the city, into all the different structures, institutions, artifact-creating world, and in all of that, their imagination was filled with the glory of God and the goodness and mercies of God, and their daily lives, all the way down to their, their deepest fears and hopes, had been renovated by the gospel. So Paul calls them to this kind of life. I have like an hour's worth of additional notes, which I should not share. Uh, so uh, every preacher should have in front John 14 something, I think it is. Uh, I have much more to say to you, but you cannot bear it now. So um, <laughs> so let me just summarize it super fast. All those things I read, that, that whole long chapter, it's all him giving them little kaleidoscopic pictures of how you'd live if you didn't have anxiety and fantasy. And if instead you had a renewed imagination. So you'd have sober judgment about yourself. Don't think more highly than you ought to think. You'd outdo each other in showing honor. You wouldn't be haughty. You would freely associate with the lowly. And this fell like a... I, I, this metaphor is not in my notes, but I might as well go with it. Fell like a renewing bombshell. That just does not work. I should not have said those words. Uh, this <laughs> fell like a, uh, an amazing planting of a new flower in an ancient culture that was full of honor-seeking and self-protection, right? A world full of attention to honor and status, and the early Christians moved them in that world with no attention to those things, just like their Lord Jesus had done. Paul calls them to it the sacrifice of membership, of seeing one another as so intimately related to us that they're like the members of our bodies. And this is a sacrifice. It requires giving up my fantasy of independence from you and realizing if I'm going to live with Jesus in this place, I'm going to have to be part of you. And this fell like a beautiful plant in the loneliness of the ancient world this teeming city of Rome in which most people could not even be called persons. They were not persons before the law. They were not seen as persons by others. They were owned by others. And in that world, the church said to everyone, slave, free, male, female, high rank, low rank, you are a member of us. The sacrifice of rejoicing. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Be ardent in spirit. Rejoice in hope. Bless which fell into the soil of the ancient world and dispelled and began to uproot its cynicism, its bitterness, all that tangled history of politics in Rome, the certainty that no one was acting in the interest of the common good. And here was these people who just rejoiced 
and the sacrifice of patience in an impatient world. We're going to step out of the Mermaid Theater into a world of honor protection and self-promotion, loneliness, cynicism, impatience. But what if we stepped out of here as a people of sober judgment, members so closely linked that when one suffers, all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. That will only happen if we commit to being a living sacrifice. I just want to tell you one more thing. Paul ends this letter, Romans 16, you can read it later, with just a long set of greetings. He's never been to Rome, but somehow he knows all these names. And it's a really weird thing to read now because we don't know who any of these people were, but Paul does. Phoebe, Prisca, Aquila, Epinetus, Mary, Andronicus, Urbanus, men, women, Jews, Gentiles, people of all conditions. And you know what he does? He shows honor to all of them. He seems himself as a member of them. He rejoices in them. And there's this kind of, you can just picture him sitting wherever he is and thinking, who else do I need to greet? And I feel like this would happen to me if I wrote you a letter in about a month. I'd be like, there's, there's uh, David and Philippa, and there's um, Andy, uh, and then there's uh, Liam and Helen. And then I'd be like, and what's, and, and Matt, and what's Matt's wife's name? You know, and Paul actually does this. He says, uh, Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus. <laughs> and then at the end, he sends greetings, and it, it reads like this. Timothy, my coworker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my relatives. And then my, I think this may be my favorite verse in the New Testament. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Well, this is Paul's letter to the Romans. Who is this? This is the scribe who actually sat and listened as Paul dictated this letter, wrote it out in fair hand, and his name is Tertius. To me, this moment is actually, if you want to ask, where's the cultural renewal in the Bible, it's this moment when a scribe named Tertius greets the Roman church and the Lord. Now, what is happening here? Tertius was a scribe. It means he was probably a slave, perhaps a freedman, not of high status. He's just been sitting taking dictation. And the most striking thing about him is his name, Tertius. Do you know what Tertius means? Third. His name was third. The Romans only bothered giving names, to the real names, to the firstborn, maybe second. Then you've got Tertius. And here's third, who's been taking dictation from this apostle. And, and Paul stops. He's got to stop and say, wait, Tertius, you need to greet. It's this moment where all the fantasies about status evaporate, where Paul rejoices in his brother Tertius, outdoes himself, Paul does, in showing honor to Tertius, associates with him, recognizes him, knows his name, knows he's a fellow member in this community. A community that has this kind of imagination, that attends to the thirds all around us, that kind of community, it did change the world, and it could do so again. Let me just tell you one more thing because it leads into prayer. Sorry, that's really unfair. One more thing, one more thing. 
But I really need to tell you how I got free of that anx- my own anxiety. Because God has something for you today. I, I didn't just grow out of it. These things actually get, if you don't attend to them, they get worse. They don't naturally just resolve for the most part. I went to some friends. I said, I have to tell you what's going on in my head. It's, it's really embarrassing. <laughs> and my friends got around me, laid their hands on me, members of one another. And I repented of spinning out my little stories and of imagining a future without God. And I said, God, I want you in my life again in a deeper way. And my friends prayed and I cried and all kinds of liquids flowed from various parts of my body and I, it was so embarrassing. I have never heard those voices again in my life. Now, I'm not perfect, but I am free. And you can be too. And free people transform the world. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.